reading of God's word. Our text for today comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the, gen- of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right, all right. How's everybody doing? Whoa, that went the wrong way. We got to tighten this. All right, it's good to see everybody. We, uh, before we get into the message this morning, I just want to take a second. Today is the first day that we've had the privilege of having our upper elementary students with us in church. So if you see a couple of uh, them, the last Sunday of every month, we're going to have our third through sixth graders with us in, in service so that they can receive communion with us. Uh, it's something we feel strongly about, that, is, that as students grow and mature, that they should begin to slowly begin to integrate into the body, to see um, their parents and their parents' friends and the other people in their community uh, worship Jesus and receive communion uh, together with us. And so the last Sunday of every month, we'll be doing that. So uh, just a note as to why that is happening. And we want, uh, at Grace Community, we want to be a place where the, li- the whole life of the church, what happens in our kids' area, what happens up here, kind of is integrated in a sense. You know, in the early church, everybody was just in one room, right? (laughs) All the time, just one room together all the time. They must have had better, um, uh, less desire for personal space. But, uh, (laughs) But we really want to be a community in every sense of the word. And so that's part of the reason why we're doing that. So uh, that's why the kids are in the today. Uh, and just before we get into the message, two other things. The first being that you see in your bulletins, if you have it out, that we are calling a special business meeting in two weeks, in two Sundays, on the 13th, I believe. We're going to have a special business meeting uh, following, uh, following church. The reason we're calling this meeting is that the board, the leadership team at Grace Community Church, Uh, made a decision to bring before the body a decision to possibly sell the four acres of land that sit to the west of our uh, church. We really feel that the time might be right to consider that uh, and to take that resource and leverage it for the kingdom and leverage it for our church. And so uh, we are going to have that meeting pretty much immediately following church in two weeks. So if you are a member of the church, uh, we ask that you come be a part of that. Um, we'll, we'll answer any questions you might have and have a little bit of discussion around that and also seek approval uh, to list that land in order to be in accordance with our bylaws. So that is exciting news, and I think it's a really good thing for the life of our church. So if you want to be, if you have any more questions about that, feel free to come and talk to me or email me. I believe my email is always in the bulletin. I'd love to answer your questions. All right? All right, so that's good. And finally, I just want to emphasize what Ashley emphasized earlier, baptism, baptism. Uh, 
uh, we really want to be a church that, uh, that is open and available to the work of the Spirit. And one of the things that God instructs his followers to do if they follow him is to be baptized in water. And so in, th- in three weeks, yes, we're going to have an opportunity for water baptism. If you are in this place and you were only baptized as an infant or you, uh, or you have not been baptized at all, we would love uh, to uh, help you step out in faith and uh, profess your faith through water baptism. So um, if you want to be a part of that, maybe you've talked to me already, but would you please go sign up at the, at the coffee bar back um, in the lobby, and that way we will get in contact with you and we can start that process. All right? All right, the announcements are over. So today, we are beginning uh, our second week in a series on Jesus, politics, and our public life. Who was with us last week? Raise a hand if you were with us last week. Most people, this is good. This is good. Last week, we kicked off this series by uh, specifically looking at Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of the world. That's what we covered last week. And what we said was, was that for the Christian... If you're a Christian in this place, your primary identity must be as a kingdom of God person. Above all other identities, all other allegiances, all other um, uh, ideologies even, for the Jesus follower, they are first and foremost a kingdom of God person. And then we looked at a few of the implications of that teaching. And specifically, we looked at some of Jesus' teachings about what it means to be citizens of both the kingdom of God and citizens of a country, which we all are in this place. So, uh, basically we unpacked what it, looked like, what it looks like to be Jesus' kingdom people. That's what we looked at last week. So if you were not here with us last week, I would encourage you that these messages do kind of stack up. They pancake on top of one another to a certain extent. So I would encourage you after you leave this place this week to go back and listen to last week's message because it is, uh, I do think it's important both for the life of our church uh, and to kind of get some of these ideas. And can I just say from the outset of this message, uh, last week was, I, I loved it. It was actually a really great Sunday. But I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who were here last week for the kind of grace and the humility that you displayed in the handling of an issue that in our world is particularly contentious, I think. It is very easy in our climate for, the, for this issue of Jesus and politics and our public life to quickly become very divisive. Now, I'm biased. I, I realize this. I'm a very biased person. But I, th- I don't think every church either in the Cedar Valley or in the country, could have had that type of conversation with the attitude and the grace with which you all had it last week. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, I'm, I, I think I'm kind of lucky uh, to pastor a group of people that come to church with open minds and open hearts and open to teaching from the scripture. So I just uh, was really impressed both practically and spiritually, by the way our community handled that teaching last week. So I just wanted to say thank you. All right? All right. So this week, we are going to talk about power. Power, which is an interesting thing to talk about in church, right? Specifically, we're talking about the way that Jesus followers should understand and engage with political power. Last week, we talked about uh, the, king, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world and how those two things kind of crash into one another and the tension that that creates 
in our lives. But today we're talking specifically about the ways in which power and authority work both in the world and in the kingdom of God. And we're going to look specifically at the ways in which Jesus teaches us that and teaches his followers that the way that his followers are supposed to engage with power is completely different, like 180 degrees different from the way that, uh, that political authorities in the world understand and engage with power or authority or the ability to make people do what you want them to do. And uh, as it turns out, this is a really important question. A really important question, and it's one that Christians have grappled with for literally thousands of years. But in order to illustrate this, I have to take you on a little bit of a journey through the history books. All right? Sometimes I think that I am a history nerd, and other people are not. And when I jump into the history of the church or the history of the Bible, people begin to kind of fall asleep. And so I want to encourage you that, that while this might sound a little bit like a history class, it is so much more than that. It's instructive, actually, for us to understand how Jesus' church down through time has engaged with political power in a way that has been both good at times and bad at other times. Surprisingly enough, the church has not always got this thing right. We haven't always followed Jesus well in this regard, and we need to look to the history of the church before we hop into the scriptures today to really see some of the ways that we have made mistakes. So that's what we're going to begin doing this morning. So now I hope this doesn't just feel like a history class the whole time. I hope that by the end we can kind of funnel this teaching down so that it makes sense for us, and that by the end some light bulbs are hopefully going off in your brains. All right? All right. So... Up until the year 312 AD, the question of how Christians should interact with political power was a total non-issue. It was a total non-issue. Early Christians for the first three centuries of the church had no power or status. They didn't have a claim to any power or status in society. Most Christians came from the lower classes of society. Their primary interaction with the government was simply to try to avoid it right? To try to avoid persecution. That's what their main thing was. The Apostle Peter, in one of his letters to the church, instructs the first generations of Christians who were suffering persecution at the hands of the government. He instructs them to live this way in 1 Peter 2, uh, 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Peter is essentially saying here, Christians, even though you are not treated well by the authorities, you suffer accusation and persecution, but still live good lives that glorify God. This was the kind of moniker of the church for the first 300 years. This is the way they attempted to live, and it worked. For the, uh, Even though thousands of Christians were martyred during the first years of the church, the church continued to grow. It continued to progress. The strategy that Peter uh, suggests to his listeners worked. And by the year 300, Christians were roughly about 10% of the population in the Roman world. Roughly 10%. Now, these Christians were still marginalized. They still didn't have much power. But they were effective in spreading the good news of Jesus. But all that changed in the year 312. When the emperor Constantine was in a war with a political rival, a guy named Maxentius. 
Now, historians tell us that about noon, as a battle loomed on the horizon, the Emperor Constantine had either a dream or a vision. We're not really sure what happened. But in this vision or dream, he, ha- he saw a bright shining cross in the sky. And along with that cross, he also saw the words that, that said, conquer by this. Constantine was not a Christian at the time, but he knew who Jesus was and he knew what the cross represented. But after this vision, he instructed his armies to place a symbol on their shields. What's, the symbol is called the Cairo, and we actually have it here. If you've seen this symbol, that's just two, uh, it's, just a, it's just a monogram. It's two Greek letters. It's the Chi and the Rho. It's the first two letters of the word Christ. It's a monogram of Christ. And so his soldiers did this. They placed the Cairo on their shields. They placed this emblem on their shields and they went into battle. They went into battle. And they won. They won this particular battle. And Constantine was so sure that God had given him the victory that when he returned to Rome, he converted to Christianity. Though he was not baptized until just moments before his death years later. But in that very moment, Christianity went from a kind of marginalized religions on the periphery of society to the official religion of the Roman Empire. It's a pretty big shift. And Christians who once had no cultural power were suddenly in a position to acquire power. And this began the story of the the Christian faith's uneasy relationship with political power. From Constantine down through the Middle Ages and into the Reformation and and even into relatively modern times, Christians have had access to political power. And in some cases have even been in the position to use political power as a tool to legislate Christian morality and sometimes in history even coerce religious observance. This is basically what you see throughout the Middle Ages as religious leaders acted more like monarchs than like pastors, if you've looked at the Middle Ages, you understand this, and kings and queens sought to align their kingdoms with Christianity in order to lend their rule a kind of legitimacy. You see this over and over again in the history of the Western world. Now, I'm not going to try and cover an entire semester's worth of Western civilization in this morning, but in large part, the history of the Western world is the history of the church and the state being very closely connected together. So close that sometimes they're nearly indistinguishable. And the reason this is important is that whenever Christianity has used political power to further its... uh, Whenever Christianity has used political power to further its agenda, things have tended to go wrong. They've tended to go desperately wrong, actually. This close connection between the church and political power is what made it possible for kings in the Middle Ages to send crusaders to the Middle East to fight, quote-unquote, religious wars. It is why Spanish monarchs in the 15th century began the Inquisition to purify Christianity by brutalizing anyone who did not fit into their narrow definition of what a Christian was. It is why even after the Protestant Reformation, both John Calvin and Martin Luther, religious leaders who did incredible things for the message of Jesus in the world, also made horrible and dehumanizing mistakes as political leaders, trying to enforce their new expression of faith on people through power. I think history shows us quite clearly 
quite clearly that every time the institutional church gets too much political power and attempts to use that power, that worldly power, to further its agenda, really bad stuff happens. Really bad stuff happens. And I think the reason that this is the case is because Jesus never meant for his movement to acquire worldly power. Not in that way. And I think they, these uh, down through the history, what Christians have missed is an understanding of, Je- of Jesus' teaching that he gives to his disciples in our teaching text for today, actually. In this passage, Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. He's just celebrated the Passover, and he's given them the practice of communion. And uh, right on the heels of all of that, his disciples get into a dispute over who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus has literally just gotten down on his hands and knees and washed their dirty feet. And not a, just a couple minutes after they're done with the Passover meal, his disciples get up and they start saying, who's going to be vice president? This is what they, who's going who's gonna to have the highest authority in government? Who's gonna, which of us is going to be the most powerful person? This is going to be great. Right? The disciples had no clue what was going to happen after they left that place. They still think Jesus is going to amass an army and take over Jerusalem and be king. And they, they were arguing about who was going to have what role in his cabinet. And Jesus interrupts them right then and there. And he says this. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For whoever is greatest, or who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me. Uh, the, you, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if I were to translate this for you, I would simply say, Jesus says to his disciples, my kingdom is not going to look how you think it's going to look. It's simply not. It will not look like the kingdom of the world where people fight and claw to gain political power so that they can lord it over people. Jesus' kingdom will be a kind of upside-down kingdom. And the defining characteristic of Jesus' kingdom is what? Service. It's service. Humble service. This is the defining characteristic of Jesus' kingdom. He says it as plain as day there. Where the kingdom of the world uses power over, power to make people do what they want them to do, authority over people in order to accomplish its goals, Jesus' kingdom is always characterized by power under, power to serve people. 
And so I think the reason that things have gone bad at times through Christian history as Christians gain political power is that they were simply never supposed to have it in the first place. Jesus says my kingdom and the structure of it should, be, should function in a completely different way than the structures of our world. And the, and the kingdom of God and the church are supposed to function in a way where they leverage their influence, not through power over, not through the power to make people do what they want them to do, but rather through the power of self-sacrificial service and love. This is the way that the politics of the kingdom of God function. This is the way that the kingdom of God works. It is a service-based kingdom. And historically, whenever the church has used political power, it never goes well. It never goes well. We always mess things up. And this is because, and I think there's, there's actually a practical reason why this is the case. This is because political power or power over this external kind of power, this power that, makes, that conforms people's behavior, can't change the heart. Right? Power over people can't change their hearts. And you know what Jesus is all about? People's hearts. Jesus is all about people's hearts. Now, we know this instinctively because uh, if someone tells you to do something, that does not mean that you want to do it, right? I don't drive past the speed limit because I think the speed limit is a good idea, right? I want to go 55, but I go 35 so that I don't get a ticket, right? This is political power. It has the ability to constrain my behavior, but it can't transform my heart. We always want to go faster, by and large, right? But there is a kind of external rule that makes us conform to a standard. Rules in power over are great. They, they work well at conforming our behavior and, and making sure that when we relate in public that we do so in a way that doesn't step all over everybody's toes. But that power over, that power to make, our, to make us do things doesn't transform the heart. You know, my wife and I, we often talk about how to help our kids to learn to be kind and loving and others focused. It's kind of scary when you become a parent. Like, you look at a little, a little child who you are responsible for, and you go, how am I supposed to help this child be kind and loving? I have no idea how to teach them how to do that. We don't, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't teach children to be kind and loving and others focused by making a bunch of rules about be kind, be loving, be others focused. You can't, you can't teach a child to be that way by simply telling them to do it, right? It's setting up a system of punishment when they're not nice to their brother or sister doesn't, it, it helps the house be peaceful at times, but it does not make them loving, right? Children learn to be loving by being loved. They learn to be selfless only after they have been the recipients of a kind of selfless act. You cannot legislate a transformed heart. It just doesn't work. And Jesus is all about the heart. 
He's all about your heart. And so he sets up a kingdom that is all about changing people's hearts, not transforming their behavior. And Jesus puts on display the love of God through the greatest act of of self-sacrifice and love the world has ever seen. Jesus goes to the cross in this ultimate act of service. This is what Jesus does immediately after he corrects his disciples about the nature of power in his kingdom. He goes to the cross in this ultimate act of kingdom of God, power under self-sacrificial love. And he does it, and he does all of this so that our hearts will be transformed. So that we can see and experience the love of God and be transformed from the inside out. This is why he does it. And this is what Jesus' kingdom is all about. And it is very different from the kingdom of the world that seeks to control behavior by the use of laws and power over people. And so down through history, when the church has tried to use power over, when it has seen political power as an either convenient way or an expedient way to accomplish its goals, things have gone wrong. Which is why I believe the church is at its best when it has fully embraced the teachings and example of Jesus in this regard, by living out of a place of servant-hearted love. And this servant-hearted love may not always look like the best or the quickest option. It may not always look from the perspective of our culture like the best way, but it is always the Jesus way. Jesus says this in verse 27, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, understanding all of this, the kind of implications of this idea of political power and power in the kingdom, how practically should Christians live as power under people in a power over world? Because that's the tension point, that Jesus asks his followers to be power under people, but yet we live in a power over world. The next time your boss, the next time you go into work and your boss says, hey, do this, you say, I'm power under, man. Why don't you do it? Serve me, right? It won't go over very well. It won't go over very well, will it? How do we live as power under people in a power over world? That's the question. So, a couple implications of this. The first being, Christians should support whatever system of civil government we live under. If you read Romans 13, if you, read, if you continue to read in 1 Peter chapter 2, both uh, Paul and Peter make quite clear that Christians should obey the, the, the governing authorities th- that they live under. As far as they can. As far as it doesn't, um, doesn't compromise their faith, they are to obey the laws of the land in which they live. Now, we will talk about this a little bit more next week. This is actually what all of next week's message is about, so I'm not going to belabor it. But Jesus makes quite clear that he has sovereignly established, uh, or not even established, but he has sovereignly chosen to use power and governments to restrain evil and give structure to society. And these are good things. And this is quite clear in the scriptures. 
And what you need to see is that early Christians lived in a pagan and morally bankrupt society, completely and utterly, more so than the society we live in today, where the authorities were actively trying to destroy and marginalize them. And yet they were still instructed to support the government as much as they could, right? So Christians in our day are called to obey, to submit, to uh, support the governmental structures in which we live. Now, it is G.K. Chesterton that said, you have to love something enough to want to change it, right? And I think that's true. We can participate in the structures of government and work for their betterment, but we are called as kingdom citizens, as followers of Jesus, to obey the government. It's pretty plain and simple. So, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more next week about what it looks like to live as a people of honor in a culture of dishonor. And I think this, we'll unpack some of these ideas a little bit more next week. So we'll move on to the, our sep- second implication for this morning. And if the band could come up. Christians are called to engage our political structures through acts of self-sacrificial love. Christians are called to engage our political structures through acts of self-sacrificial love. Now, this teaching of that Christians are supposed to be a power under people and the world is a kind of power over people could lead many of us to believe that we're simply called to avoid the problems of the world altogether, right? We're just trying to avoid the problems of the physical world and, uh, and just neglect those are, who, are imp- uh, who are oppressed and ignore evil in our society, Right, that, that, that you could misconstrue this teaching in a way to, to, that we are called to a kind of inaction. But Jesus does not call us to passivity. and says Instead, he calls us to a kind of action. Because the true cure for the world's problems exists in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes promising those who follow will have life in life to the full. And this is not simply a kind of heavenly promise. Christians can work within the systems of government to see laws passed and structures enacted that will help other people flourish. But if we truly want to see the world changed, it will not be through the passing of laws or the gaming of or the gaining of political power. This won't be the ultimate way that the world is changed. It will be through servant-hearted love. This will be the way that the world is changed. A great example of this is the foster care system in, in America. I saw uh, this week that there's something like 111,000 kids that are up for adoption in America, roughly speaking. And Christians could advocate for gov- in government for better rules and better laws and more money for those in the foster care system and, in the adopt- and, in, and up for adoption in America. But do you know what will truly change that problem in in the United States? It's if Christians actually go and sacrifice and adopt a kid, right? We can advocate for laws all day long, but until we are willing to sacrifice our own comfort for the sake of another, the problem is never going to be transformed. The truth of the matter is, is that Christians are, are people who are called to go out into the world in self-sacrifice and love, laying down our rights, laying down our comfort, laying down, uh, laying, laying down our own power for the sake of others. 
And to truly change the world, especially in a situation like foster care or adoption, Christians have only to be, make themselves available and serve. I heard one statistic that if 10%, 10% of American churches really got involved in the foster care and adoption system, we wouldn't have need for the foster care and adoption system in America. Sometimes the passing of laws and the advocating for those types of things is valuable. Other times, most of the time, what is necessary is a group of Jesus people who know what it is to serve the world through acts of self-sacrificial love. You know, along with taking care of the foster care system, if the church were to do this, right? What we would actually end up doing is making a huge dent in the number of people who go to prison. Because a vast majority, not a vast majority, but a large percentage of the children who come out of foster care end up in our prison system. So you'd make a difference there. A large percentage of, of people who are trafficked in our nation come out of this same system in two. And that system would be, and, and that problem would be significantly impacted as well. In Psalm 68, 6, uh, the psalmist says this, God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. There are all kinds of issues that Christians can get involved in like this, but all of them, all of them require a kind of self-sacrifice and a kind of love. Christians are people who are not called to wield specifically political power over people to transform behavior. We are people who are called to lay down our lives in self-sacrifice and love for other people, to show them the character and the person of Jesus, that they might be transformed from the inside out. And the way we make a difference in this world is not by raising a big stink. It's not by putting a, 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 a lawn sign in your yard, as effective as that is. Though I do that, that's fine with me, it's not a big deal. But that's not the primary way that the kingdom of God people are called to make a difference in the world. The kingdom of God people are called to make a difference in the world through the way in which they lay down their lives for other people. This is what it is. And there is nothing, nothing more political than that. Being the ability to serve and sacrifice and love and lay down your life and get knocked down and get back up. This is what it looks like to be a, a, a kingdom of God person in the kingdom of the world. And Jesus makes this quite clear in when he gives the disciples this new practice, this new thing called communion. You know, Jesus in that upper room, as he's receiving, as he's, uh, as he's, take, as he's sitting down to the Passover meal with his followers, says to them, a, a new practice, a new thing I give you. And he begins to give them the ordinance of communion as a way of helping them to remember and connect back to the fact that the central piece, the, the, the central point of the Christian faith is the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. And that in that singular act of self-sacrifice, the whole world was turned upside down. Christians receive communion together as a, as, a, as a sign and as a practice of remembering Christ's self-sacrifice 
and reminding ourselves that we live in an upside down kingdom. We live in a kingdom where the thing that wins is service and is sacrifice. That ultimately in the kingdom of God, the way that God will transform the world, the way that God wins in the end is through the cross. Not through our abilities to take power, not through our abilities to make people do what we want them to do, but rather to serve them in love. And this will always look different than the kingdom of the world. We're about to head into a political cycle, aren't we? We're in the middle of it. And all you will hear is that when our guy or our girl gets in power, then we can make things the way we want them to be. Right? As soon as my person is in the Oval Office, I mean, they're going to make it the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus tells us that that is a futile practice. Not pointless. Not pointless. And we should engage in the political process. But ultimately, your man or your woman who you vote for in a year will not make the world the place that it's supposed to be. The one who will make the world the place it was supposed to be is the lamb who was slain, who laid down his life for the life of the world. This is the truth of the gospel, and it is the, type, it is the way we are called to embody the truth of who Jesus is. Politics in the kingdom of God is about downward mobility and service. Downward mobility and service to the world for the sake of the world. And if those helping with the serving community could come forward. And in just a moment, we're going to come to the table this morning and remind ourselves that Jesus is this servant-hearted king, this one who shows us that the way to freedom the way to a transformed life, the way to a transformed heart is through self-sacrifice and service. And as we come to the table this morning, as we celebrate uh, communion together, let us never forget, let us never forget that the way of the kingdom is a way of service. It's a way of service. So would you stand with me this morning? At Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't need to be a member of our church in order to receive with us. All we, act, all we ask is that you follow Jesus, that you've placed your trust in Jesus, and you follow him with your life. And this morning, as we, as we receive, just know that this symbol of the, of the bread and the cup is not just a symbol. It is a, it is a truth Jesus wants to communicate to us of the significance of, and the power of what service and sacrifice and love can do in the world. So uh, let us come to the table. The table's open.